This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to the 51st episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. On today's show, Glynis McCarthy, Brent Robinson and I reflect on the latest article from Professor Eric Honagel called Safer Systems, People Training or Systems Tuning. The article was published on the 31st of August 2021 in the European Journal of Investigation in Health psychology and education. This is an intriguing article. It explores the legacy of safety systems, classical human factor solutions of training design and automations. It looks at the training dilemma, the meaning of safety, safety performance, and then finally, how can systems be made safer by asking the questions training or tuning? The links to this article can be found in the show notes. And the article is available for download under the terms and conditions of the Creative Commons attribution. So now please sit back and enjoy this discussion with us on people training or system tuning. So the title of this new um, article from Eric Honagel is Safety Systems people training or system tuning and that's what he puts forward and he talks about um, the drawback of safety training is that it focuses on a single system component being the human instead of the system as a whole and safety training takes for granted that humans are a liability and focus on overcoming the weaknesses of a specific component through models of what determines human performance. And he also goes to say that humans may also be seen as an asset which changes the focus to strengthen how a complex system would function. And it's, I suppose it's really interesting because the, the reason why I thought we'd talk about this, this podcast is that um, that's not what I have thought of training from an adult ed perspective. Now, it might be training how some people on safety train, but it's not how I've viewed things from an adult ed perspective. And, and on that basis, I've always felt that um, you know, people form part of a system and that the system is a collection of people, it's a collection of uh, processes, it's a collection of lots of different things. And good adult education is basically, you know, a, a number of elements, including we need to be able to describe, you know, what does good look like? So what, what, what do we want people to achieve and how to achieve it? We need the opportunity to understand where a person's currently at and we need to provide them with that pathway to progress and to learn. 
So where have I gone adrift? How, how can I connect what this new article is saying around safety training and try to reconcile that with how we've sort of always looked at people from an adult ed perspective? Any thoughts around that, Glynis? About how, how we look at humans with an adult education? Um, I, I'm actually going to answer that in a slightly different way, if that's all right. Um, what I am going to say is that um, I, I actually agree with the article in, in, in many respects. I agree with the article in the sense that training is often quite a blunt tool. So although I'm a trainer myself, um, first and foremost, um, I often think that uh, what we are trying to achieve is actually far greater than what we are able to achieve. Um, that, you know, we're lucky if, if somebody can retain a very small amount of, of what it is that we're putting forward, um, particularly when we use the top-down approach to training. I think if we don't pay enough attention to where the person is starting from and what is their existing framework and their, their existing um, knowledge, that actually if we provide with a whole lot of other information, that that information just sort of sits in a kind of a nebulous space. Um, you know, I know, um, I know that many times when people are really under pressure, they'll revert back to what they know, not what they've recently been trained. So unless that training is well integrated into practice, and unless there are support structures in place to allow that full integration of training, actually a lot of the training is can often be just superfluous. Um, I very much agree with adult ed education principles in that we need to look at an individual really as part of something that's much bigger. So we need to consider their immediate framework, we need to, their immediate environment, we need to consider what's their starting point, and what are the tasks that they do. We need to consider their connections, both upstream and downstream to what it is that they do and how do they provide uh, constraints or, or how do they aid practice. We need to think about the, the exosystem, um, we need to think about the things that sit around the indirect environment. You know, again, what are the constraints? What is the, the culture of the organization like? Um, what are the values of the organization? both at a kind of at a micro level and at a macro level. And we also need to think about kind of the evolution of work over time. So we actually need to think about something much more than just the individual. So when it comes to the article that we're referring to, for me, training is a part of something. It's not the be all and end all. It's really about how do we understand the individual within a greater piece, a, a greater system, and how do we fine tune that greater system rather than putting an emphasis just on the individual. But hasn't, you know, some of the training we see out there is that there's been an event. They then develop a training package. They make everybody go through the training package or the, whatever that may be. And then they have a assessment, which is um, 10 questions of multi-choice. They're all assessed. We're all happy. And they tick the box and move on. Right. And, you know, what I'm seeing and is that sometimes you just need people to show you that they understood what you're trying to get across by actually demonstrating the actual skill or the improvement or the whatever it may be. And it, it seems that we use training as a compliance tool and then measure people against and say, hey, well, you didn't follow the training and you're not following the, you're not following the procedure. And that doesn't seem to work. What well, I've not seen it work. So I'm really interested in that assessment part of it as well to say, well, not that we want them to, the whole the whole multi-choice question thing sometimes does my head in, 
where it's a skill around using a crane and you want them to run, go demonstrate, go show me. You know, you show them, they show you how the, what their understanding of what that is. And unless you get that sort of two-way hands-on for a lot of people, it makes no difference. They've not learned anything necessarily. They've gone through some training. But training, I think as Glenna said, it's just a function. Glennis and I just come off a call uh, with organization where basically um, uh, they've, they've had an event and they're looking at how to improve their um, onboarding or how to improve the uh, competency or proficiency of, of, of that workforce. And we were exploring with them um, the use of a buddy system. But when you use the word buddy system, you can conjure up probably 10 or 12 different variations of what that means. But what this was about was about taking people into an organization, getting them to work alongside other people to co-construct uh, their learning over a period of time and how, I think the, the words that Glynis used was how to use that person to become a active component in the building of that skill over a period of time. Mm. And, and I'll, it, it, about being an active recipient. Yeah. So it, it is about that person being in the driving seat of learning. And I think that that's the issue with a lot of training that we often are talking about, that that training, the person, the person who's receiving the training is the passive recipient of training. And so I think then we leave so much to chance. You know, we leave so much to, to things such as, you know, I know when I'm evaluated for training, so often it's got nothing to do with my prowess. It's got nothing to do with the engagement that you have or the conversations that you have, nothing to do with the extension of, of learning and, and of development of skill. But it's got a whole lot to do with the heating, the lighting, and the morning tea. Right. So, so nothing about the graphic on your skirt that day, on your dress, or the... Well, quite or often the color not. of your cardigan. Well, it's, or, it's sometimes that that kind of comes into it, but I, I don't think that that's what we should be measuring. And I agree <laughs> with you. But often the the tools that we use to measure the success of training are very blunt. Again, I think you know multi multi choice often is actually assessing people's semantics of language. Yes. Um, it's often about recall. It's got nothing to do with competency. For me, there, when we're looking at competency, we do need to move beyond just a demonstration. You do actually really want to know how the person thinks about that particular task. Um, how do they think about risk in that particular task? What is their risk appetite with regards to that particular task? And what are their contingency plans? And, and how far, how left of sort of center or right of center are those contingency plans? That's really what we want to be assessing when we're looking at competency. We use lots of proxies for competency. So we use lots of things like achievement of an assessment, a formal assessment. But that, that gives you competency potentially of in that moment. But it doesn't give us a good understanding of long-standing competency. And long-standing competency is more than just a demonstration of being able to do something it's really being a, it's an exploration of that underpinning knowledge and skills and understanding of the context of how that task can be done safely and proficiently. Um, you know, if I take us back over to that, art, that article, for me, the, the things that sort of sat really nicely, there was a comment really early on in the article 
And that was about knowing the problem before you get to the solution. Um, and so much of learning teams is really about that, isn't it? It's about the identification of the problem rather than jumping in and doing the solution. And I find often that the training is the solution, but we jump to that. It seems really easy, particularly when we can kind of pull it off the shelf and we can do it consistently and everybody gets the same type of training. The problem with it, it's really blunt. The moment that we have a diverse workforce, actually that the bluntness of that tool becomes more and more evident. So for me, training is something that should be held with value and it should be done that is something that is done at the right time with the right amount of input. But we need to look at it as part of a wider system. So we need to look at the context in which work is, is taking place. And we need to look at the drivers and the constraints. And we need to look at what is that particular role and what is our system doing to support good practice? And what is our system doing to, to hinder good practice? And although I quite like the use of, of the terminology, uh, uh, you know, about kind of interwoven um, systems, um, you know, often we might talk about them in terms of um, concentric circles, or we might talk about ecological systems. Um, I do like the idea that you put an individual, the worker in the middle of those, and you look to see how do those um, circles as they move out further and further from the worker, how do they support good practice? And what are the things that drive and um, encourage and support good practice? And what are those things that really detract? So what you're describing there is the difference between training and learning, though, isn't it? In a, in a lot of respects, because I think we use training as the tool. And really what we're after is trying to understand what the learning has been from the point of view of the worker or the individual. Well, it's a function. So training is a method, is a method uh, of having what of having some learning intentions. I think the other point that Linus was making too is that as time goes on, and how do we support them? Because it, training is a one-off event, and then what do we do to support that moving forward as time goes on? Because that's where we seem to have that difference between you know what what the expectation is of the organisation and what we're finally seeing. You know, workers imagine work is done. Yeah, but but you could you could you could have training, for instance, and you could have say ten learning intentions, but there's no way that all the people at training are going to come out with the same ten learnings. No, I totally agree. It's it's just not how it it's not not how it's going to work out. So so for me, training is a as a function to support learning, and you know in the article we we talk about this notion of of improving. Well, um, once again. Learning may, may lead to an improvement, or one could also say that learning might lead to a changed state in how a person looks at something or perceives something. Is that an improvement? I don't know. Is a change of state an improvement? Depends which direction it's going. Mm, that's right. It depends what your starting point is. Um, again, if training doesn't align to a person's schema, and, and all I mean by that is that their current state of knowledge, if so if the, if the training doesn't align to that in the, in the first instance and provide enough impetus to, to transform practice, then actually you get very little transformation of practice. So if I kind of strip out all of those words, if the training doesn't make sense of the person receiving the training, actually, I don't think you get much learning. If you don't get much learning, you don't get a change in behavior. 
So we need to make sure that the training is not blunt, that the training is specific enough to, to allow the person to take on board to reflect where they're at at the moment and to maybe make some changes. On the other side of it, when we put the entire, entire onus onto the worker, now we're starting to, to talk about something different. We're moving away from talking about training and we're now talking about competency. And they're actually two very different things. Training can help to, to develop competency, but it is certainly not the only part. And when we talk about competency, we talk about knowledge and skills and aptitude and attitude. We're talking about capability and capacity. So we're talking about something that's much broader. So again, for me, the training takes place in part of something that is greater. And I, what I do like in the article that we're, that we're refer, referencing here, I suppose, is those kind of the notion of a concentric circles, that as you move further and further away from the individual, the worker, that those circles also need to support good practice. Um, and when I, when I was sort of, when I'm thinking about this, actually the reference point that I would use would be to use Bronnenbrenner's um, ecological system theory and where you, again, you're looking at kind of multiple circles as they emanate from the individual. Um, and so that you are aware of where are the different tension points. So again, you can put all of the load onto the worker, but if the machinery that they're working is inherently unsafe, or the practice that they're doing is inherently unsafe, you can put all the input into the worker you like, but actually you may not get a, a good outcome. Again, if you put a worker into an environment where the safety culture is very poor and doesn't support people to put the hand up and to, 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 to question or to challenge or to, to, to seek you know, alternatives, again, you can put all the training input in you like, but it's not going to bring about a good outcome. Actually, and again, if we have a poor system of work, if we, if we just think that training is going to be the be all and end all, we don't, we don't get the um, outcome that we're really looking to get. Well, particularly if we're just training people what the rules are. Yeah, and even if you're more altruistic and you're training beyond just a rules-based approach, um, everything has to be in alignment. I do think that the, you have to look at training as part of something that is bigger. Yeah, but ultimately, if we, if we think this from a risk management point of view, uh, competency is is really essential for workers when they're having to deal with that residual risk. So whatever so whatever the organization has done to manage risk, whatever is left over is now what the worker has to deal with. So you're saying the lack of capacity in the system to be to provide a safe system of work, the worker is dealing with that difference. Well the, well, the workers having to adapt within the constraints and capacities of the system they're working on. Yep. So whatever, whatever that is, if the worker can't see how they sit in that system, if the worker doesn't understand what are the upper and lower control limits of that system, yep. then when things start to change, then how are they going to have that uh, capability or that capacity to, to, to know? So that's that whole thing about, um, you know, what, whatever the organisation has done to reduce risk, whatever is left over, it's then left up to the worker to manage that. So if I've got a, if I've got a piece of machinery and, and I opt not, if I opt to put a sign up to say, please don't put your hand into the moving part, 
then now I'm leaving it up to the competency of that worker to know and understand and be willing to comply 100% of the time not to do that for whatever reason. So training them is not the answer. If we, if we want to reduce risk, then we, we need to do things that actually focus on managing the hazard. For whatever risk is left over, we want to support the workers to be successful in that work. Therefore, by having that competency framework that sets them up to be successful rather than setting them up for failure. So how often do we see that training is a corrective action as the result of the event? How often do we see that training is being used as a punishment tool because the worker should have got it right the first time? Let's send them on more training. Let's torture them some more to make sure they don't get it wrong in the future. Yeah, we, well, we see lots and lots of that. But you know, I still think that, to Glynis's point, it is an integral part of the whole system, isn't it? that it helps make those connections across those different parts of the system. But to your point, Brent, you can't rely on it as the only thing that's going to keep people safe. If, if someone doesn't understand the purpose of something. Yep. So, so you know, once again, we, we, we look at this all the time, you know, with automated machinery is a good example. Um, you know, the, the automation, the, the safety component around automation is really there about the routine work. Because you've you've removed the interface of the worker for that routine component. Yeah. But when things are having to be fixed or repaired or adjusted or maintained, then you're relying everything about the worker and their competency and their ability to see how they sit within that system. And that's where you want um, people that are competent who can understand those components that rather rather than saying when 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 should i stop the work when it becomes unsafe hmm. they should be able to um, have that rationale of being able to say when is the work safe to start but i think that um to glennis's point if that organizational imperative to stop the work or not start the work because it's not safe isn't there that that they don't have that they don't have that ability to make that decision they're just forced to keep on going then none of that will work will it because they're going to go ahead and do their job well they only got two decisions left then and i think that go you know goes to safety culture or whatever word we want to use to describe that but um you know, it is really complex and it is really nebulous because there's no one there's no one answer. I just think training is a proportion of what we're talking about, but it's how it interfaces to every other bit of support we provide as well. Safe system of work, the interfaces, and um, yeah, but but if we've got workers who are trying to deal with highly complex or dynamic risk environments, yep, we don't want to train them how to complete a form. No. We want to build skills so that they can so that they can see where they sit, where they're present, and what those outliers are, and how to support them um, in, in making better decisions because they're they're faced with making the decision. 
so so often are our systems seeking the worker to give permission. Yep. So don't 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 start this job until you've completed the lockout tag out. Or the take five or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't I don't understand that. It it should be the other way around. The system should be seeking the worker's permission that that the state of that job is safe enough for them to commence that operation because there is risk involved. And there has to be risk involved. Well, it brings me back to that example of that um, robotic palletizer. So that, you know, it had all these safety systems it needed for its routine job of packing pallets of cement onto a pallet, right? It's when it needed maintenance and the electrician decided to walk in there and then get the his friend on the outside to reset the machine, but didn't know what the ramifications of that would be and it was an awful ramification because he didn't know what it was going to do next and i think that's what that's what you're getting to with that last point of yours is that the, on the routine work in automation we know what it's going what the design is and you've taken the worker away from that and that's fine it's when it's non-routine maintenance cleaning whatever it might be that that's when the risk increases and the skills and uh, you know need to improve we're still relying on those skills aren't we at that point yeah and and i'm sure the worker learned something from that event but was that learning intentional no not at all right and, and i think that goes back to that conversation about so much learning happens passively yeah definitely. Ra rather than rather than intentionally and if we want to build skills it has to be intentional it has to, has to have purpose. Which does mean that we need to be really clear about what are we trying to what are we trying to instruct. So again, if we're looking at kind of, is there a magic bullet? Can you just train everything? No, you can't. Um, it, it, training is part of a bigger system of work, isn't it? Um, we have to really understand what are, where are the things that are mutually dependent on one another? Um, where's the complexity? Where are the, the linkages? Um, it, this isn't something that's really binary. We, don't, we can't go training, therefore competent. Actually, what we need to do is we need to be really clear about where is the person starting from? What are the constraints on them? What's that wider piece? And, and then how do we make sure that our system supports good practice? Um, so for me, you know, th th those two things are very much linked. We do need to look and make sure that our, the system in which the person is operating in is as tweaked as it can be, as it, it, it is as functional as it can be, and it can support and aid good practice. And at the same time that we are giving the right types of skills and developing the right types of skills for our workers so that they can critically appraise risk when they're doing the job. But they know where they sit within that, that wider piece of work. So, you know, the, the two things to me very much overlap. And if you look at something in complete isolation, actually you start to lose its value. If you think that the system in itself is going to keep people safe, I don't think that that really happens. We've identified that systems can be brittle. If we put the entire load onto the individual, well, then we start to get issues around competency because, mm -hmm. again, human beings aren't robotic. So what we have to be able to do is those two things need to come together and we need to be smarter. We need to stop putting people into training rooms and thinking we should train everything because we've got them as a captive audience. We need to be much more targeted around what it is that they need to know 
and how are they going to show demonstration of that knowledge and of that skill set? And how will our system support the embedding of that knowledge and of that skill set? Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We would love to hear your learnings or other topics you would like us to explore about learning teams. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and give us your feedback. Become part of the community of practice with learning teams. Go to www.learningteamscommunity.com. Support the authors of the practice of learning teams. Purchase the book from Amazon.com or go to www.learningteamsbook.com for an inside look and other free book resources from the authors. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.